Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, we are charting the sell-off. Tech stocks crashing back to earth today. We'll dive into the charts to see if there is more trouble ahead. Plus, we're following new developments in the wake of that massive hack attack on the nation's largest petroleum pipeline. One top cybersecurity analyst calling it a fully preventable failure. He'll tell us which companies have the best technology to prevent something like this from happening again. And we're all over the After Hours Action and shares of Roblox and Simon Property Group. Both stocks on the move on results. We'll bring you the numbers. But we start off with a bloodbath for big tech. The Nasdaq plunging 2.5% today for its biggest loss since mid-March. The selling widespread across technology and intensifying into the close. The Nasdaq finishing at session lows. And it wasn't just the high flyers crashing back to earth. The tech titans all seeing massive losses. Facebook, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet losing a combined $700 billion in market capitalization today alone. That is more than one whole Berkshire Hathaway wiped out in a single trading session. So does today tech sell-off send a real warning shot to investors? Guy, was this it? Well, I would think so. But again, Mel, you know this. I've thought this for quite some time. But, you know, the things that concern me, and it basically started on Friday. I mean, I know you guys talked about it, but extraordinarily disappointing jobs number. You saw 10-year yields trade down to, I think, 1.47 or so. The reversal in yields on Friday were a bit of a warning sign. And obviously, the move again today, I just think, sort of uh, amplifies that and puts an exclamation point. I think yields are the key. Russell down 2.5% today in line with the NASDAQ. That's you know made an all-time high back on March 15th. That can't get out of its own way right now. So there are clearly a lot of warning signs. Look at the technicals. Monster double top in Amazon. We've talked about that now for a couple days. And the fact that Apple couldn't make a new all-time high on the back of their earnings release was uh, alarming as well. There are a lot of things to be concerned about. But there, this has happened so many times over the last year. You wonder if it's a day thing or if this is the beginning of something. Again, I'll say I believe this is the beginning of something. That's the thing. We have seen this time and time again. And before you know it, techs um, get a bid. But here's what's different. I mean, you mentioned yields. Yields reversed on Friday, but they didn't really go much higher. We're at 1.6%. I mean, you would think that yields would have had to go a lot higher in order for this bevy of tech stocks to close at session lows. I mean, Netflix, Amazon, Square, Apple, Tesla, Twitter, the Sox, the NASDAQ 100, the Russell, the TLT closing at or near session lows, Tim. Um, do you think this is a one-day thing like we've seen in the past, or does this feel like something different? Well, it's, it's, it's not a one-day thing because it hasn't been a one-day thing. Yeah. I mean, look, semis peaked in mid-February, and, and semis, are, I think, you know, have underperformed the S&P by almost 13% since that time. Triple Qs uh, have underperformed the S&P uh, by about 9% over the last 60 days. 
and, and you, you're getting at some important levels on the charts. So I know Chris Verone's going to come here and talk about I'll leave that to him. But then you layer it in. What were some of the things that were the big volatility points last week? And, and remember, the VIX, uh, when we did our midday call, and folks, we have a call at 1230, the VIX was a little spiked. Um, but, but, you know, it massively spiked into the close. And, and the VIX now, uh, again, back above the 50 for the first time since, I think, March 5th or 6th. But the most important thing, which we focused on last week, maybe what we're focusing on, is inflation and rates and the Fed. And I think this is part of it. And I think interest rates also uh, as they relate to taxation and capital gains tax uh, and where, again, we're going to be funding some of these deficits is why mega cap tech and high multiple stocks that don't necessarily make money but have gone up two or three times are in the the eye of the storm. And and I think that that's not a one-day event. In fact, this has been going on for a few weeks. And I I think actually today felt very, very ugly. Uh, You look at a a trade desk, you look at a magnite, so some of these digital advertising stocks. I mean, these were massive, massive moves by not small companies, and that's concerning. And speaking of digital advertising, you layer in this downgrade of Facebook and Alphabet, Karen, from Citigroup to a neutral. Um, They're worried about the growth Mm -hmm. in, in digital advertising in the future. Any company that's levered to different digital advertising they're concerned about, these are value names in your view. And yet they got hit and they got hit with a downgrade that questions the growth of their business. Yeah, although looking at the note, uh, which was an interesting piece, I mm-hmm. hear some of what they're saying, which is, OK, we might see acceleration in the near term, but then it'll 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 decline. Maybe the growth rate will decline, let's say. But they left their price target for Alphabet and Facebook, I think, unchanged, but did take it to a neutral. So when I, you know, when we get in markets like these, where I always say when things start to trade down in integers, that's interesting to me. On my buy list is Facebook. I think that you know when you back out the cash, we're looking at 21 maybe times earnings. So that to me is value, and um, I'm optimistic on advertising growth continuing. He may well be right that at the end of this year or next year it slows. But this is sort of that's for another day, I think. So I'm looking to buy some Facebook. I think part of what happened today, I mean, Tim's right. This isn't a one day thing because it's already started. Mm -hmm. This isn't the first day today. This is just the acceleration. And so to me, it's also an acceleration of the reopen trade because you saw a lot of things that are reopened that did okay or better than okay, And the sort of out of high flyer into low P.E. multiples, those kind of things did okay. So for me. The one thing I did today, beside make a buy list, was I covered some IGV. Just when you feel like this is the thing that I most like in my portfolio, I sort of feel like, all right, it's kind of done what I hoped it would do. I got to cover some. I think it very well could trade down more tomorrow. I'll probably cover some more. I mean, you've had a lot of things get really compressed, not to cheap. The high flyers aren't cheap yet, but they're down substantially. The rotation into lower valuation is a good point, Dan, and we even saw that within the technology sector. And my poster child for low valuation technology is IBM, and that finished the day up a half a percent. Yeah, we talked about IBM, Oracle, Cisco last week, and Dell even, you know, trading really near multi-year highs, definitely 52-week highs relative to some of their uh, more nouveau um, uh, tech friends here. Um, Listen, you know, you can rotate all you want. I mean, you know, these guys have just been talking about this. There's been a rotation at a high valuation tech that's been going on for months and months, and the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average have masked that massive underperformance. And I'll just give you an example. Uh, You know, Karen was just talking about the 
end of the um, you know the work from home trade or the reopening trade, you know you have Zoom that closed down 51% from its all time highs made just a couple months ago or a few months ago. This stock still has an 85 billion dollar market cap. It trades at 22 times sales. So you know there's no amount of like you know I mean you know valuations didn't matter on the way down. They may not matter you know or excuse me on the way up. They may not matter on the way down. There's plenty of room for these things to go. And then if you want to rotate into mega cap tech, the F mega complex, look at Apple. Okay, Apple after this year, we have a couple more quarters of double digit revenue and sales growth. Maybe next year, fiscal year 2022, they are going to grow revenue and sales low single digits. So you're paying above a market multiple, well above a market multiple, 24 times for that. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Services is growing at, you know, mid 20s percent. It's making up nearly 20 percent of their um, total sales in that last quarter. But I would tell you that the last two quarters are pretty fairly unique. So if Apple is going to deal with decelerating growth in their fastest growing business, what the heck are you paying 24 times sales? Because about a year and a half ago, people were struggling paying 13 times or excuse me, 13 times earnings. So to me, the valuation thing only matters, you know, after the fact here. And I think we may start seeing it in some other sectors very soon. Yeah, valuation is in the eye of the beholder. Um, Guy, I'm wondering, you know, as we saw the popularity of ETFs like an ARC or all of these sort of thematic ETFs that invested pretty much in all of the same things and they're all trading lower, are we seeing the sort of uh, the impact of selling of those on the underlying issues? Because they all own yeah, 100%, 100%. the NASDAQ 100, basically. Yeah, I, I apologize for jumping on your mail. Yeah, 100%. But we don't talk, not we, the market participants don't talk about it. When everything's going higher, you never hear that uh, being uttered, the fact that all these stocks are getting dragged up by the ETFs. But when things start going down, then you start hearing about how the ETF is affecting the underlying stocks. It works both ways, and I know that you know that. And I know that we talk about that all the time, but the sun also sets and you're starting to see it there. And Tim is 100 percent right. This didn't just start um, today. It started probably at the peak when we heard about um, the chip shortage, however many months that was ago. My point, and I should have been more specific, is the S&P 500 effectively made an all-time high today. I think it was within two handles of its prior all-time high that we probably made last week. My point is the S&P clearly hasn't cared. And for today, at least, it's starting to. We'll see if there's follow through. But there's a number of things to be concerned about today, um, and I think we sort of illustrated many of them. All right, let's get a technical take on today's tech sell-off. Joining us now, Chris Barone of Strategus. Chris, what'd you make it today? Well, a couple things here. I think it's important to emphasize this doesn't look like rotation. None of these stories are new. And I think when you look at some of the big fang stocks and some of the big tech stocks, these didn't peak a week ago or six weeks ago. Most of these relative to the S&P peaked last summer. If we bring up Amazon, for example, Amazon has made no price progress in 10 months. It made 52-week relative price lows today. And this is against the backdrop of what people perceive to be really strong earnings. We always pay attention when things don't go up when they're supposed to. And you see it with the Amazons. You see it with the Apples. You see it with the Microsofts, the Netflix. These are stocks that haven't made any relative dollars in almost a year now. That's a long time for leaders Hint, hint, maybe they're not leaders here anymore. And if you look at this in terms of broader tech, um, the second chart we brought along is just tech relative to the S&P, this bottom panel. These are 52-week relative price lows for the technology sector. First time in about nine years 
tech has made 52-week relative lows versus the S&P. So the character of the leadership backdrop continues to change. This is not a one- or two-week story. This has, been, this has been going on for months and months and months. And, you know, we came up with this table that we've been showing clients. I think there's the perception out there that the inputs driving this market have not changed. Yields still remain stable. The Fed hasn't moved. The earnings have still been exceptional. But what has changed is the market's interpretation of all of those different things. And we always say we get nervous when the market doesn't respond to the same set of news flow like it has in the past. And I think of that list, maybe the market's telling us something on this list is wrong. And I would look to the yield component. I think it's really interesting. Tim touched on it. Um, when you look at the response to bond yields after Friday's miss, you had a 700,000 miss in payrolls. And bond yields closed flat on the day. Um, we brought along the copper versus gold chart. This has always been a very good tell on yields. Copper gold higher tends to drive yields higher along with it. Yields have diverged. We think they catch up. We think that means higher yields. And the other place where you see this, uh, our last chart today, is financials. Financials relative to the S&P made multi-year highs uh, last week, despite bond yields having come in. So when you look at the things that people perceive have not changed, I think the market is telling us that yields will change. Higher yields, not great for growth, not great for tech, much better for financials, materials, industrials. That is what the leadership fabric of this market looks like. And I think we should take note. And when you say higher yields, Chris, what is, in your view, is it retesting the prior recent highs or how high are we talking about? You know, we've been saying we're going to see a two-handle on U.S. 10s this year, but I want you to think about this a little bit differently. This is the first time in my career I can remember U.S. yields going lower and European yields not following them there or not getting there first. German yields have not gone down. Uh, French yields have not gone down. Italian yields broke out this week. Swiss yields have not gone down. French yields just went positive for the first time in a couple of years. The move in the European yields, I think, is another one of those subtle pieces of information that says uh, U.S. yields higher from here. All right, Chris, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Verone of Strategus. Um, Kramer was on Squawk on the Street, as he always is this morning. He was talking about the Wall Street Bets crowd and, and how they're all, you know, hopped up on the Teslas of the world and all that stuff when they should really be hopped up on, on an Alcoa. An Alcoa, which is up, what, 30-something percent in one month, too. <laughs> I mean, this is, a, this is a, a mental readjustment in terms of how we regard the market leadership. If we are to say technology is no, the biggest component still, but not leadership in this market. Well, if, if you think about reflation trades and the dynamics that we're talking about, again, a, a normalized 10-year, whether it's 175, whether it's 210, uh, whether it's 240, um, is, is ultimately a sign of a healthier economy. And we know what the GDP numbers are going to be, and we know that this is actually a comeback. So what everybody said, and Chris highlighted the fact that we went to 146 intraday on Friday, the low on the 10. Uh, we're up to once. We've moved 15 bips um, in, a, in a seemingly economic headwind environment over the last couple of days. It's not. But but yes, look, the Reddit crowd, uh, I think 
you know, whether they're rotating or not, I have no idea what drives them. I honestly don't. I mean, you know, GameStop, when I look at some of these high multiple tech names, I actually think that there's uh, markets are having a healthy response to what they should do. Look at the move higher in, in rates and banks uh, and the move weaker in dollar and what it's doing, though, to commodity prices. Again, uh, you had a 10 percent spike in iron ore futures overnight in China. We've talked about copper at all time highs. Those are the stocks those folks should be playing in because mm-hmm. those are the ones with high short interest, too. Some of them, uh, some of these resource names. And look, gold has just started to take part in this. And if you think there's some stocks that can move with uh, major betas, look at gold miners, look at junior miners. Right. We talk about that. But you're right. Aluminum, Alcoa, uh, steel. Steel, copper, all of these names are moving, and I think they're going higher. All right, we've got some breaking news here we want to get to. The FDA is authorizing Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID vaccine for emergency use in adolescents. So another cohort of the population being approved for use of this vaccine, which is obviously very good news in terms of the reopening. Very good news, Karen, in terms of reopening schools fully and getting people back into the workforce, particularly women who have not joined the workforce, uh, rejoined the workforce, I should say, in the same manner and speed which men have primarily because they're the primary caregivers. Yes. I mean, if you're home with kids doing Zoom school and uh, no help and uh, trying to work yourself, that, that's a disaster. And so, I mean, any way you can clear the kids out of the house, great, so that you can go back to work, <laughs> that's a great thing. But obviously we want everybody to uh, feel protective and to be able to go out. But I think this is just more of the reopen trade, sort of another piece of data to support the reopen trade that's uh, fitting in. I do believe we're going to see higher rates. And I think we're going to see the rotation out of stocks with super high multiples, but also that they happen to be pandemic trades, right? Work from home trades. Mm -hmm. So I think that will continue. And that favors the low PE multiple ones and the kind of things like Guy Guy and and Tim have all been on have been on, you know, the steel, copper, Alcoa, gold. So I think that's been the right place so far. And I think it'll continue to be. Pfizer, we're seeing in the after-hour session tick higher. It is up by about seven-tenths of a percent. Guy, I mean, feasibly, this is a whole other population that could get be getting the shot in the time frame in which Pfizer has the patents, even if they are waived eventually um, by, by the administration. Yeah, it's wonderful news, without question. I mean, it, but in, through our lens, I mean, Pfizer, if you think about it, Pfizer topped that around 44 many, many months ago, just as sort of the zenith of, of the initial Good news. But one thing I wanted to mention, because I do think it's important, you know, we're going to debate uh, increasing minimum wage in this country. But I think what you saw on Friday speaks to exactly what happened today. I mean, CMG announced that they're going to raise their minimum wage to $15 an hour in June. Now, just think about that. The market's doing it for the politicians. Why? Because you got to get people back to work somehow. You got to incentivize people. So, there's your wage inflation. Um, listen, I know it's anecdotal with CMG, but it's going to happen more and more often. And that's why I think rates probably went higher on Friday. And that's why I think they can continue to go higher in the weeks to come. Yeah, CPI will be very interesting this week, that's for sure. Coming up, we've got some after-hours action to tell you about Roblox, Simon Property, both on the move on earnings. We're breaking down the numbers and the trades there, plus pipeline problems. One top cybersecurity analyst says the Colonial Pipeline hack was Totally preventable. The two names, he says, could stop a future attack. We've got all that and much more when Fast Money returns. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got earnings alerts on Roblox and Simon Property Group, both stocks on the move in the after hours. Courtney Reagan standing by with the latest on SPG, but we kick things off with Josh Lifton on Roblox. Josh. So, Melissa, remember heading into this print, the stock was down about 10% in May. It was down about 20% from its all-time high, but now sharply higher here in the after hours. As for Q1 results, a loss of 46 cents, revenue up 140% to $387 million. Not clear whether that's comparable to estimates, but bookings up 161% to $652 million. And average daily active users, the company says, up 79% to $42.1 million. Interesting comments here for the company's CFO as well, saying they must continue to innovate and so remain focused, he says, on building great technology to make progress on our key growth vectors. And what are those vectors, he calls out? Primarily, he says, international expansion and expanding the age demographic of our users. And of course, that is one question investors have of this company, kind of the reach and traction they can now get with that older demo. Remember, the conference call for this one is scheduled for tomorrow morning. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton. Dan Nathan, should we be concerned about uh, the pull forward here in this in this company's business? Yeah, I mean, especially when you think about that demographic, I think you should probably be more concerned with the fact that it's approaching a market cap very similar to that of EA right here, up 10% or so in the aftermarkets. I mean, it's just below that 40 billion. You know, Roblox's sales are growing much faster. They have about um, a similar sort of gross margin um, as many in the industry in the mid um, 70s, growing 25, 30, uh, 30% um, a year, where most of the industry is not growing that much. So to me, you know, is it a potential takeover candidate? Possibly with that sort of growth and that sort of potential um, as you kind of go up uh, the age demographics. But it's still very expensive, trading about 16, 17 times sales um, on a $2.2 billion number. It's a pretty meaty uh, target for somebody. All right, let's uh, move on to Simon Property Group here, moving lower in the after hours off its results. The call is underway. Courtney Reagan's got the very latest. Hey, Court. Hi, Melissa. So the mall operator beating the street's expectations for earnings and for revenue, though it's still working to catch up to its pre-pandemic levels. Total net operating income, that's down 8.4% year over year. Simon Property Group is increasing its earnings guidance range, though that accounts largely for this pretty big first quarter beat. Occupancy stands at just under 91% for its U.S. malls and outlets, with its base rent up slightly 0.6% to $56.00. 
$3.07 per square foot. Now, CEO David Simon notes increasing shopper traffic, retailers' sales, and leasing momentum. Shares have been on either side of the flatline after hours, though, as you pointed out, down about 1% now. The company has gained over 118% in the last year, and it was up about 1.5% today. Now, on the ongoing call, CEO David Simon called out, quote, significant improvement of operations, but does note that international operations specifically continue to be impacted by government restrictions and required closures in some locations. Mall rent collection, that's back to pre-pandemic levels for the most part, noting around 98 percent and also noting higher retail sales in March this year compared to March 2019. So pre-pandemic, of course. Mr. Simon also says the brands that the mall operator owns in its partnership with Authentic Brands Group and that Spark business, so including Forever 21, for example, have outperformed revenue expectations. He also talked a bit about what's going on with JCPenney, too. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Courtney, thanks. Courtney Reagan. Um, Karen, for the reopening trade, would you rather retail REITs Mm -hmm. or retail? Retail REITs or retail? I guess I would rather go with retail. That's a very tough would you rather, though. I mean, I think what was happening in REITs was happening anyway. Obviously, the pandemic just accelerated it beyond, you know, with warp speed. Um, And that I think that will still happen after the reopen happens. People go to the mall. They do that a bunch of times. And then they go back to a slower pace of going to the mall. But I do think that retailers that reinvent themselves and have a great e-commerce business, they can hang on to uh, that customer, even if the REIT can't. Yeah. Tim, it's amazing to hear the stats, how far Simon has come in the past year, particularly amazing. the stock price. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially also, you know, rents at uh, 98% of pre-COVID um, and that in the first quarter, which was still had some pretty heavy uh, COVID headwinds, they were at 95% collection relative to where they were, uh, you know, pre-COVID. So, I mean, something has to give because a lot of these, think of think of the restructurings that Gap and L Brands and Macy's and, and you know, where they don't own their property, which is a lot of these guys. And, and, you know, something has to give. That was part of the retail story and part of the driver, I think, for the outperformance of uh, a lot of these, frankly, broken companies. So um, I don't think they can both celebrate in the same way here. Uh, I, I think, look, the trends around mall properties are what they are, okay? Um, nice to see everybody get back, and I don't want to wish ill will on Simon Property. In fact, you know, I'd love to see people in malls, but that's not what they were doing beforehand. Um, and I think DTC is really the story for retail and where um, a lot of these retailers were forced to get to faster. I mean, if pre-COVID guy, just quickly, was the death of the mall, how can post-COVID all of a sudden the malls are, right. <laughs> you know, viva the mall? <laughs> it's such a turn. It's remarkable. I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so counterintuitive. In just terms of Simon Property, I mean, it was $142 stock before the world changed, and now it's up to 127 And you look at some of these metrics, it's like nothing's changed. To Tim's point, I would agree with Karen. I mean, in the would you rather, I'd still rather be in the retailers as opposed to to some of these REITs, but then I would push back on myself and say, look at a name like Dollar Gen today, which <laughs> traded right up to the prior high in October and seemingly failed. So there's so many cross currents here. I think the retailers are still the winners, but you still have to start looking at some of these charts as well because some of the patterns are scary. All right. We've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. 
A massive hack attack shutting down America's largest petroleum pipeline. Cybersecurity stocks front and center. We'll tell you which names could see the most impact. Plus, a doge bite. Dogecoin plunging today. We'll break down what's behind the big move. Stick with us. Much more Fast Money after this quick break. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are following new developments on that massive cyber attack that took down America's largest petroleum pipeline. Let's get to Eamon Javers, who's got the very latest. Eamon. Yeah, Melissa, very strange day today because we had this attacking group called DarkSide come out and post a statement on the dark web saying, you know, they sort of had some regret about the way this whole attack had unfolded and they promised to change their ways in the future. No indication whether that means they're not going to try to continue to charge the ransom here or not. Uh, but they did seem to express a little bit of remorse. I talked to a cybersecurity expert named Lior Div. Uh, we caught up with him in Tel Aviv this afternoon. He said he thinks that what happened here is that this attacking group may have simply bitten off more than it could chew. Here's what he said. And we believe that uh, what just happened to them, it's not good for their business uh, because they want to keep operating. They want to stay quiet under the radar and create as much as damage as they can in order to collect money. And when this type of incident becomes so, um, you know, in the spotlight, this is really not good for their business. So it's a little too hot for the bad guys here in this case, and they may have some regrets now about what they did. But clearly, this is going to continue to play out as the pipeline company says they're trying to get online by the end of the week. So we'll see if they can hit that timeline. Meanwhile, at the White House, uh, officials briefed reporters in the briefing room about this earlier today. They were very careful, though, not to say that they were giving any advice to Colonial Pipeline about whether or not they should pay this ransom or not. They seemingly, seemingly left it up to the company entirely. That's a little bit different than what we've heard from the U.S. government in the past, where the, the advice from the FBI has always been don't pay these ransoms, because if you do that, you're going to make a market for ransoms and you're going to encourage these guys to go after another company and another company and another company. And they're going to do that with your financial resources. This time around, though, the folks at the White House were seemingly saying, look, we, we get it. We know these companies are in a very tough position and they've got to make a decision for themselves. So a hands-off approach here from the U.S. government and maybe uh, some regrets on the part of the hackers here. I've never seen anything like, quite like that, Melissa. <laughs> Remorse on the part of hackers is not really something that happens very often. Eamon, I, just a quick right, question. The implication right. of what your expert said implies that the hackers did not know that they were actually targeting the pipeline, that, that because this was a, a, an attack on unsecured endpoints, that perhaps there was a wide net cast and this is what they ended up getting? Yeah, and I think it's actually a little bit more nuanced than that. I think the people who conducted the attack knew, probably knew what they were targeting. But because this is ransomware as a service, right, uh, that could be different people executing the attack than the people who created the malware and who issued that statement, right? Because you, what you have here is with this dark side group, think of them as like a, the evil twin of a Silicon Valley startup. They're developing the software and then selling it to customers. Their customers are 
other criminal gangs who then go out and use that software and attack various targets. So what you may have here is a disagreement between the software developer and the software developer's customer, uh, right. all of whom are, are criminal gangsters, uh, but are different groups of criminal gangsters, and they might have different thoughts about whether this was the right thing to do or not. Eamon, thanks for clarifying. Appreciate it. Eamon Javers. Our next guest says this hack was a fully preventable failure, and he is looking at two cybersecurity stocks that are best positioned to handle this kind of attack. Joining us now is Andrew Nowinski, senior tech analyst at DA Davids. And Andrew, always great to get your take on things, um, and specifically the two companies that you think will benefit the most. You're looking at them benefiting because of the specific kind of attack that this was on the Colonial Pipeline. Yeah, hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, yeah, so the two stocks I'm recommending off this attack are, are Palo Alto and CrowdStrike. And, and Eamon's exactly right in his ex- explanation of, of the type of attack it was. You know, this was not a nation-state attack. The malware was developed by a group called the Dark Side, executed by their partners. Yet the damage and the destabilization, you know, that this attack created was on par with the nation-state capabilities. You know, the second thing that's really uh, different about this attack is that the level of sophistication of this group is pretty frightening. And, and sadly, there does not seem to be any sort of repercussions for conducting attacks like this. So the, so the question is, how do organizations stop attacks like this? You know, they have, they have to develop best-in-class platform or deploy best-in-class platforms from the likes of Palo Alto and CrowdStrike. A platform approach is the only way to detect and stop a sophisticated attack like this before the damage is done. And both Palo Alto and CrowdStrike have, have best-in-class platforms that could have stopped this attack uh, and also uh, prevented the exfiltration of data once they are inside. Typically, Andrew, how many months after an attack, or, or maybe even years after an attack like this, do you actually see a CrowdStrike or Palo Alto gain business? Do you see it in their earnings results, you know, a quarter after, two quarters after? Do we see that kind of relationship or no? Well, I, I think you can go back to a number of the historical attacks we've seen. So most recently, solar, the solar winds attack uh, happened in December. Uh, certainly, Palo Alto and CrowdStrike really didn't see any sort of near-term impact to their January quarter results. Um, but I think it certainly contributes to the pipeline build for the remainder of the year for both those companies. Now, we'll see them reporting their results for their April quarter uh, coming up shortly in a few weeks. And I think both are actually um, you know, seeing... Uh, significantly better demand trends than they've seen uh, last year at this time, in part driven by these attacks. So this this net, most recent ransomware attack absolutely adds to the pipeline uh, for, for both companies. Andrew, I know the catalyst is never an acquisition target, but to me, you know, look at a name like Zscaler, which I think you cover, but CrowdStrike, you know, they have a relationship with Google. I mean, any of these companies, anywhere from 30 to $50 billion dollars, you could get deals done. Does it make sense for one of these huge uh, tech companies to bolt on a name like you just mentioned, a CrowdStrike? Uh, absolutely. So CrowdStrike is really more than just an endpoint security vendor that they're bolting on. They really have developed their own platform. I, I wouldn't say it's as extensive as Palo Alto. Palo Alto is by far the most comprehensive platform. But CrowdStrike has 19 modules now. I think at the time of their IPO, they had about 10. So they're really covering a vast majority of the threat vectors that a hacking group you know, could exploit. They can, they can cover your endpoint, and they do. Uh, it's, it's a very cloud-centric uh, solution. So they, they can analyze trillions of threat indicators in a matter of seconds up in their threat graph database. So I, I think it absolutely is. Uh, I, I wouldn't really call it a bolt-on per se, but it's, it's really, it augments the, uh, the platform of, 
of every vendor out there, maybe with the exception of Palo Alto. I think Palo Alto's got a fantastic portfolio built up already covering network, endpoints, and, and cloud. Andrew, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Andrew Nowinski. Um, Tim Seymour, what do you make of these names? Theoretically, it seems like their pipelines now are goosed because of this, but um, they fall in this, into this high <laughs> multiple sort of vortex, which yeah, the markets they, don't like. Yeah. This is exactly our previous conversation because, look, CrowdStrike, they have about 9% of this $10 billion endpoint market. You know, fantastic. In fact, a couple of the analysts, I think, compare them to a, a younger version of Palo Alto. Great stuff. Uh, but not cheap. And, and so this is an environment where uh, I, I think those multiples, look, if we were having this conversation a year ago, uh, off to the races. And, and again, they just reported the numbers are very good. 45 percent revenue growth. Um, not a stock I'm going to chase here, even though, uh, you know, I'd like to say that. I mean, I, I, I've been a fan of CrowdStrike. I just don't need to be a fan right now in this marketplace, even on this headline. Yeah. Forty eight uh, price to sales. Dan, um, quickly, where do you stand on, on cyber? Well, I, I think that this one, an attack on a pipeline, is pretty interesting. Think about how much worse it can get. We know the Israelis just executed an attack on a nuclear plant in Iran. I mean, there's so many other like points of contact where we could have some serious disruption here. So this is like this is the black swan. I mean, this is Mr. Robot sort of stuff, right, guy? Um, so I mean, to me, there's always going to be demand services whether it be 25 or 30 times sales um i don't think it's a bolt-on acquisition for any of these maybe palo alto definitely not zscaler um or crowdstrike at these valuations though. all right coming up the cannabis craze heating up truly inking a two billion dollar deal today we'll speak with the company's ceo kim rivers straight ahead plus dogecoin can take it to the moon literally we'll break out what the out of this world to trade where it's headed next that's uh straight ahead on fast money Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's take a look at tonight's buzzkill. Dogecoin plunging. Elon Musk calling it a hustle on Saturday Night Live, but then tweeted SpaceX is launching satellite Doge One to the moon next year. And the mission will be paid for, of course, in Dogecoin. Short seller Jim Chanos, who tweets under the handle Wall Street Cynic, blasting Musk's tweet, saying SpaceX is a government contractor and we have no idea who is benefiting from higher Dogecoin prices besides Musk. He goes on to say anonymous positions in Doge may be a national security issue. Is it hyperbole, Dan, or do you think he's got a point? I think he does have a point. And I would just add to Jim's, uh, I would say, noted short seller. He does other things in the markets, and he's obviously a pretty smart commentator here. I, I mean, listen, it's just kind of a, a bunch of silliness when you think about all that's going on around this when he's doing some very serious things with SpaceX. So, I mean, to me, it's kind of like shruggy emoji. Um, why bother? But I think the point about, you know, who owns this thing and why do you keep pumping it is, is, a, is a serious question. And it just doesn't seem to be something that a serious entrepreneur or serious, somebody who is a nas uh, national security contractor would want to mess around with. Unless the point is that you can you can get the crowds to embrace anything that is regarded as a currency and threaten fiat currencies like the U.S. dollar. I mean, isn't that seems like the ultimate, um, I don't know, joke, sort of, <laughs> if, one, if one wants to call that a joke, Karen, the ultimate point to make. Yeah. I guess that doesn't that seems like really playing with fire, though. Right. I mean, I don't know. I rocket fuel, I guess. No pun intended. I don't know <laughs> how much thought he really gives it, to be honest. I, I feel like he's just having fun and just can't believe that people react the way they do. 
and that Dogecoin is here. But uh, who, who knows? The whole Dogecoin, I, I just, I don't know what to make of the whole thing. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. I don't have a good explanation at all. No one has a good explanation for this, Karen. <laughs> Coming up next, a major pod deal. We're talking to True Leaf CEO Kim Rivers about the company's $2 billion acquisition of Harvest Health and what it means for the cannabis space. And later, we're getting you set up for EA results, why option traders are hitting the pause button on this stock heading into earnings. Stay with us. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back. It is not too late to register for CNBC's Healthy Return Summit. Join leaders from Pfizer, Eli Lilly, the CDC, and more. Sign up right now at cnbcevents.com slash healthy returns. Speaking of health, there's a mega merger happening in the marijuana market. Trulieve buying Harvest Health for more than $2 billion in an all-stock deal. It is the biggest U.S. cannabis transaction to date. Joining us now in a Fast Money exclusive is the CEO of Trulieve, Kim Rivers. Kim, welcome back to the show. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. Thanks so much for having me. Can you walk us through um, the, the deal making in the U.S.? Is it should we think of it more as a land grab right now because you're not necessarily achieving scale because things are so siloed state by state until it's federally legal? Yeah, so I definitely would not characterize it as a land grab. Um, truly, if you're familiar with uh, with our company and the foundations upon which we're built, uh, we're certainly uh, we are focused on scale within the markets that we exist in and. Uh, while many companies in 2019 and 2020 specifically went very wide yet shallow, um, we chose to really focus on core markets and going deep in those core markets. Uh, and this transaction is is more of that strategy um, being executed across regional hubs. And so what we see um, in terms of the future landscape of cannabis is that it is going to be very important to be strategically located across the country, but to have, again, depth and scale in those markets. To your point, uh, we are somewhat limited um, in certain markets in terms of the scale that we can achieve. However, there are markets where scale is possible. So for example, in Florida, where we have approximately 50% of the market share, uh, we have over 2 million square feet of grow and we have you know, 82 stores um, open in that, in that market. Um, in Pennsylvania, um, Harvest has a, a sizable footprint. Um, in, Pens- in Pennsylvania is also an important market for TrueLeave as well. Uh, and then when you shift to the Southwest market, Arizona, um, Harvest is the uh, premier player in the Arizona market um, with significant cultivation and uh, dispensaries. Uh, they actually have 18 licensed dispensaries mm-hmm. and are the leader in, the, in that very important market that just shifted to recreational. So while I agree with you that from a national perspective, you can't achieve scale yet um, on a combined platform, it is important to go ahead and get um, scale and deep penetration and relationships with customers um, across specific markets in the U.S. Hey, Kim, it's Tim. Uh, Congrats on this deal. And I know this is the kind of a deal you've been looking at for a long time as an investor. um, I I see that your your stock historically had traded somewhat cheap to your your other call them, you know, high cap peers in the space. Um, I'm curious why not use some cash on this deal for a company that's so profitable. Um, You've you've generated a lot of free cash flow. And at a time when we all believe uh, that at least much of the, the industry is going to continue to re-rate. I'm, I'm just I'm curious about that approach. I think the valuation uh, of, of Harvest was was healthy um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I just think that um, if, if anything, now that you are in a few states, the re-rating of your stock is part of the story here around this transaction. Sure. Yeah, Tim, I mean, I think that as we know, right, cash is, is very important in this industry, particularly around the fact that, um, you know, it is... Um, 
difficult um, to, to achieve, you know, market rate uh, financial terms because of our limitations at the federal level, along with our tax rate, which we've talked about yep. with you all. So, um, and, and look, I mean, we plan to use that cash to invest in these markets and to make sure that they are, um, you know, turned on as much as possible so that we can continue to generate returns um, like we have in the past, right? I mean, you're talking about with this combination, creating the most profitable cannabis company in the world. And that return on investment is very important. It's something that we're very focused on. So when you look at the price of the deal, um, I think it's important to note that Harvest had an incredibly strong Q1, which is just the beginning for them in terms of their continued um, you know, profitability. And um, they had 30% EBITDA margins. They um, you know, tripled uh, their EBITDA from, from Q4, um, significant beat on revenue. And so we've been working um, with them behind the scenes um, and doing extensive diligence for over five months now. So we're very, very comfortable with their position and certainly are very excited for our shareholders um, with respect to the future that this combined transaction brings. Cam, always good to see you. Thanks for keeping yep. us posted. All right. So, Tim, what, what do you make of the deal here? And do you think there's more deal making to come in the sector? Well, I, I, just want, I mean, I'm very excited. I'm a shareholder, so I'm long the stock. And, and I think it, it's very accretive, ultimately, to the combined entity. I think this is a case where you've seen a lot of deals in the past where one plus one uh, didn't equal three. It actually equaled like one point three. And this is a deal where I think it is worth more. Um, I, I think the M&A in the industry is is going bananas. Uh, I think consolidation, uh, look, I think the top five or six players, top 10 players are looking to get bigger. Uh, I think they have more access to capital than they've ever had. Uh, and I think the industry, which has pulled back, you know, 20 to, to 30, 40 percent in the last mm -hmm. few months, um, the fundamentals are never better. So, um, no, I, I think we're going to this is just the beginning. All right. Coming up, Electronic Arts gearing up to report tomorrow, but options traders are betting shares of the game maker could see a big breakdown on the results. Don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Electronic Arts gearing up to report tomorrow after the bell. Let's get to Mike Coe, who's got the options set up. Mike. Yeah, so the options market right now implying a move of about 5.6%, more than the 3.3% or so that the company has averaged over the last eight quarters. Put volume exceeded the average by more than seven times, and all of that was really the result of the June 140-130 put spread. Over 6,500 of those traded for about $3. Buyers of that are obviously betting that Electronic Arts is going to fall below that 140 strike price by at least the 3 bucks or so that they paid. And by the way, this is a trade that Tony happened to outline on Options Action last week. So people may want to go back and take a look at that if they want to understand a little better. Yep, of course. I'm sure many people have that recorded. and they, they will go back and scan for that, Mike. Thank you, Mike Coe. And if that's why you have to watch the full show every Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, including this Friday. Up next, we've got your final trade. Final trades, Tim. Barrett Gold. Dan. Seller XLF. Karen Feinerman. Yes, if Facebook trades down tomorrow, I'm a buyer. Guy Adami. Cybersecurity space, Mel FireEye into a meeting this Thursday. You guys are so succinct. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. 
While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.